Julie, I'm really excited for today's episode of Tap into Tax. We're going to have a special edition on what all VPs of tax and C-suite need to know about the still uncertain outcome of the election. That's right, Margie. And since this is a special episode, we also have a special guest moderator who we have had on our own show before. And we're so happy to welcome back Pat Brown, our PwC WNTS tax policy co-leader. And so with that, Pat, let's talk tax. You're listening to Tap into Tax. PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our tax technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists. This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified as new episodes are published. Thanks, Julie and Margie. I am really excited to host this episode today and very pleased to introduce our two panelists to cover all of the U.S. and international tax policy areas that you need to focus on post-election. All your questions are about to be answered. Joining me today is Janice Mays, a managing director in our WNTS policy practice, and Nita Asher, a principal in our international tax services practice. Both have had experience on the Hill, with Janice having 40 years on the Hill, including over 22 years as the Democratic Chief Counsel and Staff Director for the House Ways and Means Committee, and Nita having done a recent stint at the Joint Committee on Taxation as Legislation Counsel. Glad to be here, Pat. I think we have quite a lot to talk about. Thanks for having me, too. I'm excited about our ability to dive into post-election results and maybe take a look at our kind of cloudy crystal ball. Thanks. So let's get right to the burning issue of the day, Janice, the election. So where are we today? The press has projected that former Vice President Biden has enough electoral votes with Pennsylvania and other key battleground states being called to be the next president of the United States. It's worth noting that there are currently still many factors in flux, including potential recounts and ongoing litigation regarding the election. But at the moment, former Vice President Biden appears to have won the race. It also appears that Republicans may retain control of the Senate, though we may have to wait until early January to confirm that fact. More specifically, it appears likely that both Georgia Senate races will require a runoff election the first week of January, as no candidate in either race received over 50% of the vote. Right now, Republicans are projected to have 50 seats and Democrats 48 seats in the next Senate. If Democrats manage to win both Georgia runoff races, the Senate would be tied 50 Republicans to 50 Democrats, making Vice President Kamala Harris the tie-breaking vote. However, if either of Georgia's incumbent GOP senators manage to retain their seat in January, the Senate will remain in Republican hands. It's also worth noting that even if the Democrats sweep both runoff elections in Georgia, large-scale tax increases still will require every Democratic senator to vote with the party, even the most conservative Joe Manchin of West Virginia. That may be very unpopular with a number of senators. And Joe Manchin recently stated that he could support a 25% corporate rate, but not 
the 28% rate that President-elect Biden has proposed. So you already see one of the limitations. The Democrats will also retain control in the House of Representatives, although Republicans managed to pick up a number of seats there. Thanks, Janice. So that's the landscape as we sit here today. Now let's look ahead a little bit to the immediate future. What are we seeing on the policy side in the near term between now and the end of the year, let's say? Due to pressure from local communities and business leaders, some form of stimulus could still take place during the lame duck session, likely in areas of agreement where they reached consensus before the election. Recently, Senator Mitch McConnell called for some kind of a package to be agreed upon this year. This may signal an early move toward a bipartisan approach because neither COVID-19 nor the economic fallout is going away. The winter will also bring a downturn for many kinds of industries dependent on social distancing to operate. It would be unacceptable to many in the electorate for our lawmakers to stand by and do nothing. And there will be midterm elections in 2022 that could possibly give Democrats or Republicans a chance to try for full congressional control, which may provide more incentives to act. During the lame duck session, it's expected that both the Senate and the House will complete action on government funding for the remainder of fiscal year 2021, which ends September 30th, 2021, or pass another short-term funding measure. The current temporary funding measure expires on December 11, 2020. If we do see action on stimulus and COVID relief, we should also keep our eye on several tax provisions set to expire at the end of the year. Typically, Congress passes these items on a bipartisan basis, but as with anything in 2020, there is no guarantee. Those tax provisions include CFC look-through and other things like new markets tax credits, the work opportunity tax credit, and the employer credit for paid family and medical leave. That said, it seems very possible right now that those expiring provisions may have to be addressed in the next Congress, in this Congress, but retroactive to early in the year. Thanks, Janice. So I want to turn to you, Nita, now and turn our attention to maybe what I'll call the unfinished business of the TCJA. So as we think about where we sit today, what are the areas of focus specific to TCJA provisions? There are several TCJA provisions that are set to change or expire in the coming years. It remains to be seen whether Congress will take action to modify these new rules or allow the changes to be forthcoming. Some of these provisions include new rules further limiting interest deductions by denying an ADVAT for depreciation and amortization effective in 2022. And this is the EBIT versus EBITDA provision for tax years beginning after 12-31-21. Certain RNE expenditures will be capitalized and amortized after five years. And currently, these costs are expensed. Also, full expensing rules are set to begin phasing out in 2023, and tighter international tax rules are set to take effect in 2026, including increases to the beat rate and a reduction in the Section 250 deductions for purposes of guilty and FDII. On top of all these business provisions, The individual provisions from TCJA are set to expire in 2025, and this may, in fact, spur some sort of new broader tax legislation as well. One more area to note is tax extenders. 
It remains to be seen whether tax extenders will move forward in the lame duck session. One possibility is attaching them to a COVID relief bill. However, there may be a push for individual and family-related provisions, such as EITC and child tax credit, to go with any tax extenders package. I believe Janice touched on these points as well. One last point, a new administration means a new Treasury Department, which could yield regulatory changes that have significant effects on companies. The truth is, we do not know yet what position the new Treasury personnel may take. It is possible that the new leadership will issue an order to freeze all pending proposed and final regulations, which includes tax regulations, until they can be reviewed and approved by its own officials, similar to what the Obama and Trump administrations did in 2009 and 2017, respectively. The exact scope of such potential regulatory freeze remains to be seen. Thanks, Nita. So obviously a lot to think about there, provisions built into the TCJA requiring changes potentially in order to avoid maybe some things that companies would prefer not to see uh, in terms of those built-in changes. Maybe Janice, turning back to you. So how do we think about a divided government scenario? If we do end up with Republicans retaining control of the Senate, we have a President Biden, a narrowly divided but democratically controlled House and a Republican Senate. Is this a recipe for paralysis or gridlock to terms that are very popularly used uh, to talk about Washington politics? Or do we actually think there's an opportunity for cooperation here? I would say yet to be seen. Without a Democratic Senate, it seems pretty unlikely that we should expect any major legislative changes to the tax code, especially as it relates to increasing tax rates. The most likely legislative changes are going to be those where solid bipartisan consensus can be found. As Nita noted, there are two significant TCJA-based broadeners dealing with interest deductions and research expenditures that are set to become more restrictive in 2022. So those provisions could spur efforts to pass tax legislation, even in a divided government. I'd also emphasize Nita's words, a new administration needs a new Treasury Department, and that could yield regulatory change. Those changes could have significant effects on our clients. Second, while the presidency is a four-year operation, Congress is a two-year scenario. So clients will also need to remain mindful that the balance of power in 2021 could shift in 2023 after the midterms, as we saw in 2018. Thanks, Janice. So, Nita, let's talk a little bit about the international landscape. When we talk about where we might go forward based on who controls the White House or the government, some may use the expression, the show must go on. We know that international tax policy has to advance. So how do we think about that as we look forward over the next two years? An area to watch is potentially the use of trade and tax provisions to support the U.S. national interest and reverse the outflow of U.S. jobs. A key policy question is how far will an emerging bipartisan consensus go toward encouraging supply chains back to the U.S., especially from countries where there are trade and political tensions. Executives have sensed the underlying shifts driving U.S. trade priorities, particularly related to rising economic competition with China. More near term, there may be some areas of cooperation. For example, as Janice noted, tax extenders and requirements to amortize R&D expenses and increase limits on interest deductions starting in 2022. 
Thanks. That's great, Nita. We actually cover more ground on supply chains, which you were just talking about, in an accompanying podcast episode to this one on U.S. supply chains. But let's continue and talk about international tax policy, touching on BEPS 2.0. We know that countries hope to reach agreement by mid-2021. Originally, of course, they were going to try to reach agreement by October of 2020, but that's been pushed to mid-2021. But as we have learned these last two weeks, the only certainty really is ongoing or continuing uncertainty. So what is your sense really of where we are and how the outcome of the election will come into play? That's an excellent question. The United States has been working with OECD officials and added technical comments and expertise to the work and are part of what is being presented under BEPS 2.0. Depending on the personnel negotiating on behalf of the Biden administration and the extent to which the blueprint on OECD Pillar 1 stays the same, will determine how much the U.S. will engage with Pillar 1. And the potential for grandfathering the guilty regime in its current form could impact the engagement with Pillar 2. There will be personnel changes in the U.S. Treasury representing negotiations in the OECD. And while much technical work was accomplished in the project during this year, with the issuance of Pillar 1 and 2 blueprints, the major players are still very far apart. Not to mention developing countries seem to be carving a path on their own through the U.N. model treaty. In terms of the election, there may potentially be a rhetorical shift But the fundamentals have been agreed upon by many Republicans and Democrats, so major substantive changes are unlikely. There has been bipartisan support for efforts to ensure that U.S. companies are not treated unfairly under either proposals or by countries that are taking a DST approach. It's not clear whether President-elect Biden will be as inclined as President Trump has been to use tariffs against France and other countries that have enacted DST. DST, so we'll need to stay tuned. Thanks, Nita. I think you make a really great point there, and I just want to kind of emphasize it. You know, you mentioned there's a possibility of a rhetorical shift, and that certainly seems right. But you also note how the fundamentals really are broadly agreed between Republicans and Democrats. And indeed, remember, President-elect Biden was most recently Vice President Biden under President Obama. And really, it was the Obama administration that initially set out the U.S.'s policy with respect to the OECD project. And that really didn't change, although to be sure, perhaps the rhetoric changed under the Trump administration. So Janice, maybe turning back to you, how do you have a conversation if you're a VP of tax and you want to talk to senior management about the landscape and the uncertainty? And frankly, what does a business do about it? I would tell them to focus on what they can control. That's not everything. Even though it does seem like the only certainty is uncertainty these days, there is still opportunity to effectively manage tax cost. The C-suite and the tax office need to look at and evaluate structures, plan to avoid multiple taxation and reduce domino effects like foreign currency rate exposure and beat. There'll also be renewed focus on tax transparency and reporting obligations, consistent with the shift towards sustainability and standards for corporate governance that we're seeing from various stakeholders. This pressure will inevitably generate more international audit activity and double taxation. These international tax controversy pain points 
coupled with continuing guilty exposure, will make it more difficult for traditional remedies like the foreign tax credit to assist, especially when we're seeing in the proposed form of the FTC regulations that amounts taxable under Pillar 1s, amount A, and DSTs are not likely covered. Thanks, Janice. You know, we're a few minutes into this podcast and we haven't yet dug into the details of what we spent much of the last two months talking about up to the election. And that is, you know, the details of some of then former Vice President, now President-elect Biden's campaign proposals. So as we turn to the details of those, how do we think about some of those proposals? And frankly, what might have been on the table in a different set of facts, but is now maybe going to end up on the shelf and not move forward versus some things that might potentially have some momentum. So how do you assess all that, Janice? Oh, there was a lot there. President-elect Biden has set out the Build Back Better plan that calls for increased spending on infrastructure, tax incentives for clean energy and, and domestic manufacturing, expanded access to health care with a Medicare public option, targeted student loan forgiveness, increased funding for education and job training, and increased tax credits for middle and lower income families. This increase in spending and new tax initiatives would be offset by a proposed tax increase for business and higher-income individuals. In that context, President-elect Biden has proposed tax increases on those individuals earning above $400,000, an increased capital gains tax rate, and an increase in the corporate tax rate to 28% up from its current 21%. President-elect Biden has also proposed a 15% minimum tax on a company's global book income. As I commented earlier, the level of tax increases proposed by President-elect Biden will likely face some resistance from more conservative Democratic senators if Democrats do control the Senate. Republicans controlling the Senate would largely eliminate the prospect for those tax rate increases, and we won't know which party will be in control of the Senate till after the Georgia runoffs on January 5th. On the international side of things, President-elect Biden proposes increasing the tax rate on guilty income further to 21%, a proposal that could be implemented by reducing the Section 250 deduction from 50% to 25%, applied on a per-country basis, and eliminating QBI. A 25% Section 250 deduction for guilty, together with a 28% corporate tax rate and an 80% limitation for foreign tax credits, would result in a higher effective tax rate on all foreign income taxed at a rate now less than 26.25%. The OECD average corporate rate, excluding the United States, is 23.4%, and 25 OECD countries have a corporate rate lower than 26.25%. Thanks, Janice. So certainly some of those changes would be pretty dramatic compared to where we sit today. As we all know, President-elect Biden's international proposals are a mixture of what we might call carrots and sticks. How do we think about the prospects for consensus? And so where do we think we might likely see some movement towards a bipartisan consensus with respect to those? 
Both parties are showing growing interest in using trade and tax provisions to support the U.S. national interest and reverse the outflow of U.S. jobs. A key policy question is how far will an emerging bipartisan consensus go toward encouraging supply chains back to the U.S., especially from countries where there are trade and policy tensions? This could have significant implications on strategies for companies already contemplating onshore or nearshoring their operations. Thanks, Nita. Janice, how about you? When you think about this, the landscape and what we might be looking towards, do you see more movement towards bipartisanship? And what can companies focus on? I think that we could see agreement on some policy areas like clean energy, infrastructure, R&D, and some of the tax incentive provisions in the Build Back Better plan relating to creating U.S. products, jobs, and onshoring supply chains. I think it's all going to be about jobs early in the year. So I think a lot of things can fit into that category. Businesses will still need to focus on the TCJA base broadeners and OECD proposals, regardless of which party controls the Senate. Even if there's a 50-50 split in the Senate, tax increases may not be an initial focal point. COVID-19, stimulus relief, health care, infrastructure could take precedence over corporate and individual tax rate proposals, especially with interest rates as low as they are today. While it may not be likely that we will see reform of the guilty regime or the implementation of a minimum tax on global book income or corporate rate tax increases, it's still possible that we could see some tax increases to help offset major legislative initiatives potentially later in the year. There are also several sector-specific proposals that could possibly gain some traction with the new Congress, including eliminating the deduction for prescription drug advertising, enhancing tax incentives for carbon capture, use, and storage, reforming and extending the tax incentives we know generate energy efficiency and clean energy jobs, expanding qualifying income under publicly traded partnerships to include alternative energy sources. However, it's more likely, I think, that many of President-elect Biden's proposals would go on the shelf for two years and be revisited after the 2022 election if Democrats don't gain the Senate next January after the Georgia runoffs. The truth is, we don't know what will be at the top of the agenda for a Biden presidency beyond the economy. Could be infrastructure, could be health care, trade, tax, all are possibilities. Moving forward, it will be important to look at smaller provisions as the TCJA provisions are set to expire. This could possibly lead to a bipartisan agreement and negotiation, but only time will tell if bipartisanship breaks out. Thanks, Janice. This has been great. And there's obviously a lot to think about in what both of you have been talking about. So maybe, Nita, turning back to you, maybe wrap up your thoughts, some key takeaways for tax, for senior management. In terms of navigating this uncertainty, what are the things to think about? Happy to. I think the key takeaway is that there's still plenty of opportunity to effectively manage tax costs that should be happening. Even though major tax reform seems unlikely, there are actions companies should be taking right now in the current tax environment. Cash remains king as we are still enduring a pandemic and navigating disruption. The tax function plays a critical role as companies refocus on their cash strategy in a downward economy. Tax directors should also work with the treasury function to align repatriation strategies and with the finance function to align financing options to achieve liquidity for the company in these difficult economic times. Additionally, 
any strategy to minimize taxable income should be modeled against the company's overall tax posture to ensure other tax liabilities, such as the beat, are not increased. Thanks, Nita. You know, it's really interesting to close that off with a focus on companies and senior management of companies and really focusing on the economy. Because as Janice talked about, of course, that's what policymakers will very likely be doing as well, focusing on the economy and the state of the economy and having that drive so much of what they may do in the policy space, particularly early on in the new Congress and the new administration. So I just want to close by thanking both you, Nita and Janice, for joining me today. Really fascinating discussion, a lot of insights for our listeners. And I also would be remiss if I didn't thank Margie and Julie for letting me guest host this podcast. Really great to have the opportunity to do it. So with that, thank you all for joining us. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.